0: Hello, this is Episode 9 of Season 4. Now, in this episode, I'll be talking with Mick Tyrrell of Building Approvals and Advice. And we're talking about what a building certifier is or a private certifier, why you need them, and in fact, most cases, why they're essential to any building or renovation project. Welcome to Get It Right with the Undercover Architect. Our Get It Right podcast partner for season four is Colorbond Steel and their matte range. So Colorbond Steel Matte is a great choice for creating a stunning, sophisticated and subtle look for your home in a material that is tested to withstand Australia's harsh conditions and be durable, long lasting and strong for your home. As you may know, Colourbond Steel has been around for over 50 years now, so quintessentially Australian, it's been used in all kinds of projects, in locations all across Australia, with its tried and tested performance and its enduring style. The Colourbond steel matte range takes this to the next level. With 5 colours to choose from, the matte range was tested for 10 years before it was brought to market. Sophisticated and understated, it has this gorgeous luxe feel in a material that's seriously strong and durable. There are so many ways that you can use it in the walls and roof of your home, whether you're renovating or building, to create the design style that you're seeking. With a beautiful and neutral look, it has an elegance that I know that you'll love and it diffuses light for a soft, natural, textured finish. And not only does Colourbond steel matte look gorgeous, being steel, it's also 100% recyclable, it's high-tech, it's tested and designed for the Australian climate, it's a choice for bushfire zones, it's able to give your home a contemporary and sophisticated feel and it has 50 years of history behind it as a brand it's just amazing so head to wwwcolorbondcom forward slash undercover architect and that's c-o-l-o-r-b-o-n-d.com forward slash undercover architect there you can learn more about this great matte range you can request samples which i really encourage you to do and you can get inspired for how you could use it in your reno or new home And stay tuned across the season as I'll be sharing more ideas and info to help you see how it could work for your project. Now, let's get on with the episode. In this episode, we'll be diving into the role of building certifier, and they can also be known as a private certifier. Now, Mick Tyrrell of Building Approvals and Advice is a Brisbane based building certifier, and he has over 15 years of experience. Now, Mick is someone that I've known and worked with for many years. I actually worked with his brother, John, for many, many years at Mervac. He was on my project team documenting homes that we were doing at Balimba in Brisbane. So it's been a bit of a family affair. Now, Mick was the private certifier on my own most recent renovation project. And honestly, he was an essential team member in us being able to see that project through. Now, in addition to being a building certifier, Mick is also a registered Queensland structural engineer. So in all his work, building safety is his priority. And this combination of skills, you know, this certification and engineering combination, it's a great asset to any project. In my experience of working with lots of great and not so great building certifiers, the best ones become really collaborative members of your team. They help you streamline the process overall when they can really think strategically about how to help your design perform in the way that it needs to so that it can actually be approved and be built. They're not simply someone who gets a pile of drawings dumped on their desk at a specific point in your project to then tick a bunch of boxes in order to be able to do their job. So working with Mick has always been like this and it's always been an important part of ensuring that we can get to site as simply as possible because we've got that fantastic collaborative process where we can be really proactive about the building certification and achieving it and the building approval process and and be assured that there's not going to be any unnecessary stalls or hiccups in us getting our approvals and being able to commence construction and go through the project and be able to complete as well and have everything signed off and safe for the homeowner. Now, in addition to his engineering background, he has over seven years of experience of domestic building certification for homeowners, for builders and for designers in Brisbane and beyond. And he works incredibly hard to provide every client with prompt and personalised service and attention to detail that he really believes they deserve. And he's just completed his own home renovation. So, you know, he's got that great personal insight into understanding the peace of mind that comes from having that really great team and that professional streamlined and efficient certification. Now, Building Approvals and Advice, uh, the company that Mick owns, is a Brisbane-based team of building certification consultants and they work on projects throughout Queensland. They partner with designers, builders, architects, planners and engineers across a range of domestic and commercial projects. Now, as Managing Director of Building Approvals and Advice, Mick also coordinates the whole team there. They've recently been recognised as the Building Certification Team of the Year in the National RICS Awards for the second year in a row so 2016 and 2017 and they can help with services that you might need like building inspections pool fence compliance certificates energy reports and building relaxations now we're going to be talking about some of these things in our interview if you don't know what they are then listen out and you'll be able to see why you might need a building certifier to help with them and mixed personal experience it also extends from underpinning renovations new homes house demolition and removal it's fantastic to sit down with Mick to talk about the role of the building certifier because there can be a lot of confusion over what the certifier actually does and why you might even need one. And given that you, in most cases, you can't even commence construction on your project without getting a building certifier involved, it's actually it's worthwhile understanding more about what they do. So this is about the who, the what the when and the why of using a building certifier for your renovation or building project. So let's get into the episode. Hey Mick, thanks very much for joining us here on the Get It Right podcast. I'm really excited to actually talk to you about the role of a building certifier because I know that it's a bit of a mystery for a lot of homeowners what a building certifier actually does and they may not even get to have direct contact with them or know the role that they really play. So I've explained some background in uh, the intro about you and your business but perhaps if you can tell me in your own words who's Mick Terrell and uh, building approvals and advice.
1: Yeah, thanks very much for having me today. So I'm a building surveyor, uh, but I'm also a structural engineer. Um, I studied, uh, first of all, engineering, uh, but then after being overseas for about 10 years, I came home and actually found building surveying um, and studied again to become a building surveyor. So I really enjoy the, um, the role because it is a lot primarily about safety and also has a lot of key ins with um, the structural engineering background that I've got. So building approvals and advice is a, a small team. Uh, there's about 12 of us. We're predominantly residential, so probably about seventy percent of our work is in uh, domestic homes, and then also we do some small scale commercial. So just places where people live and work is our predominant theme. and we the way that we get our work is through great clients um, that th- the architects and the building designers that we work with usually have a similar scale. Um, so whether it's a small commercial tenancy fit out or whether it's a house, that's the type of work that we work with. Um, and so, yeah, we've got a great team. Um, our We've got a really good ethos around safety and also around ensuring that the building process is as smooth as possible for the owners.
0: Yeah, and I think that I, I also explained in the intro that... In terms of how you and I know each other, we have worked together and that you were the building certifier. So when you say building surveyor, that is the same terminology as the building certifier, in, just so everyone's clear, is that? Yeah. yeah. So so you were the building certifier on my own renovation and given that it was our renovation and we were kind of living in and out of it and, you know, it was certainly um, challenging for us to make sure that we ticked all the boxes in terms of getting all of our approvals and we did have to get an extension at one point and I remember there was a change that we wanted to make to uh, add a bathroom into a certain place where there'd just been a powder room and there were all these sort of little things that that do happen in the course of a building or renovation project, particularly one that <laughs> went for us for a while like ours did. And um, you were essential in us, in helping us navigate that really in a way that just didn't cause headaches for us, you know, and the fact that I think... We knew that you were a collaborative team member that we could have these conversations with to really nut out these strategies was always essential for us being able to make that happen really smoothly. So I think for a lot of homeowners, they perhaps, it's quite a quiet role perhaps for the building certifier. They they sort of almost seem to operate in the background and often because they are directly hired by either the builder or by the designer, the homeowner themselves may not have direct contact with them, but it is such an essential role. So perhaps you can explain to me a little bit about, you know, what does a building certifier actually do? You know, what what does that role entail?
1: Yeah, for sure. So in Queensland and across Australia, the role is mandatory. So the profession is a building surveyor and the role that we facilitate is of building certification. So we're actually ensuring that the work that's been carried out is actually complete and compliant and that it meets the codes. Um, So in Australia, um, we have a lot of different layers of codes. We've got Australian standards. We've got national construction codes. We've also got state uh, legislation and then local legislation. So we act as a facilitator, and we're not part of the design team because we don't do any design, but we check the design team and make sure that the design team is on the right path. So we we're involved from the beginning by reviewing the architect's plans, um, making sure that the architect has or the building designer has achieved all of the requirements. Um, but a lot of the time, we we're involved right at the beginning when it's just scheme design to see whether this is possible. Um, so it might be interpreting a local planning scheme, or it might be a question around fire separation. But as long as those, as long as that information is followed through through the process, they can get it right the first time rather than. Um, designing something outside of the scope. So that's something that I think we are really good at. And I think my background as an engineer has really helped me and our team work collaboratively with architects because I find if you can get a great architect, then the whole process will be a lot smoother or building designer, obviously.
0: Well, I think that that is definitely one key thing to, for homeowners to understand is that, um, I know that when, you know, when we're working together, it's a conversation that happens very early in the design process and, and um, particularly in Queensland, um, in some parts of, around the country, you may find that you don't require town planning approval for your home or your extension but you will always need building approval in order to be able to commence construction. And so that conversation with the building certifier at that early design stage to understand whether the design you're intending to do is going to cause any issues around that is always a really proactive way to streamline that process overall. So, And I think some of the problems that possibly do come into play is when that whole design process has happened in isolation of any involvement of the building certifier, and also the knowledge of the person doing the design to tick all the boxes, that they then hit that point of, okay, we we want to start construction in six weeks' time. Let's get this building certified, and all of a sudden there's these issues. Yeah, it, isn't there?
1: Yeah, I couldn't agree more. A lot of the a lot of the time in the construction is work as teams, so I can't recognize or I can't stress how important it is to have a team that understands the requirements Um, so when we work with amazing architects they're always wanting to design something beautiful and something functional and something environmentally friendly but they're also understanding that there are constraints uh, and those constraints are from the government so we don't have any real options around ignoring them but I find the best architects get the best designs that can still be within the code and so that's something that we love working with um, architects when they are asking those questions right at the scheme design so that they can then understand how far they can push the envelope, what are the options that they can provide amazing, beautiful homes for their for their clients. So a lot of the time we won't, I think what you said before was really true, we won't liaise a huge amount with the owners. Um, a lot of it is done in the background. And we also rely heavily on other amazing professionals that we work with that can also guide us because obviously certifiers aren't an expert at everything. We've got a really good understanding of all of the different codes, but there are certain stands, uh, certain times when we will also rely upon other professionals um, such as engineers, the architects uh, and all all the different types of uh, planners and other professionals in the industry.
0: Fantastic. So, Mick, perhaps you can explain a little bit about, you know, we've talked about, obviously, that building certifiers' role is to check that the building is compliant with National Construction Code, with building codes, and that it's it's a safe and durable building to not only be constructed, but also to be occupied long term and fit for purpose as a home. So, perhaps... You can give a bit of information about what is the like the actual process of getting, you know, a building approval look like in terms of how the building certifier gets involved, what you're physically doing, where you're sending drawings, you know, all of that type of thing.
1: Yeah, yeah, for sure. So, at BA&A, we basically break it into three sections. So there's the pre-construction, the construction, and then the post-construction. So. Although the construction is very important, we actually think that the pre-construction is probably the most important stage and it's where we liaise with the architects and the engineers and all of the relevant parties to ensure that the building documentation and that the communication via the drawings to the builder is clear and concise and it meets all the codes. So the way that we do that is in Queensland, each site is completely different. So there might be an overlay or there might be a hazard or there might be a... By
0: an overlay, you mean like a town planning requirement or something like that? Yeah.
1: So each of the plans, each of the city plans in Queensland uh, use overlays to identify things like heritage listing or flooding or bushfire. So it could be a risk or it could be something of significance that the local authority wants That particular property to be looked at.
0: Yeah, and that's pretty similar around the country and councils everywhere, isn't it? That there'll be these different layers of requirements based on your site, where it's located, what type of houses are, how old the suburb is, you know, if there are any local waterways, all that kind of information. Yeah, so you check the overlays and then.
1: So in different states, they might call it a different thing, Mm -hmm. but it's exactly the same process where. The different codes would then come into play. So if there is a flood overlay, obviously we're going to check what the flood overlay code is. Uh, If there's bushfire risk, then we'll check it against the bushfire code. So each different site will have different requirements. And so even though they might be next door to each other, there could be, in in theory, a very large stormwater pipe running directly underneath the house, which then has to have a certain set of criteria that needs to be met. Yep. So what we start off by doing is doing all the searches. So we'll look at sewers and stormwaters and easements and overlays and check all of the mapping that's provided by the local authorities. And then we'll understand from the zoning what can be built on that particular site. Once we get a head around what the overlays and what the constraints are, we can then check it against the plans mm-hmm. to make sure that those plans either meet the code or some of the time they don't meet the code. So as certifiers, we can approve things that are self-assessable. Okay. So if it's self-assessable, we'll approve it and we'll lodge it with council.
0: So self-assessable means that that the council has determined if you tick all the boxes and say the setbacks are the way they need to be, the height's the way it needs to be, the square meterage is the way it needs to be, it's doing all of the things that the town plan says it has to, then some councils will say to you, you can skip town planning and go straight to self-assessable. What else do they call it? Around the country they call it complying development. There's sort of different names for that process in different places. And it will go straight to a building certifier. But your job is still obviously then to check that it is meeting all of those criteria. Exactly. You know, that there's not some desire to just skip everything and try and do a dodgy. That it is because you've got liability in that process, haven't you, of checking off self-assessable yeah, uh, exactly. projects. Yeah,
1: So whether it's town planning or whether it's a state-based uh, siting requirement. Like a big
0: subdivision by a developer, yeah. Yeah, each yep. of the
1: different sites have got different regulations and there might be covenants or there might be building envelopes. So as long as it's inside of those requirements then we would be able to approve it. Yes. Which is great. If it's outside of those then we need to bring in an extra professional such as a town planner to be able to go to council and to apply against that particular code. Yes. So such as traditional building character overlay is one in Brisbane that we see a lot. So the old Queenslanders the council doesn't want them to be turned into modern-looking buildings. Yep. So if we do any work on them, then we will engage a... The owners will engage a planner to take them through that process.
0: Yep. So they get their town planning approval first, and then they can get their building approval. Exactly. Yep. Or their development approval first, and then tam- and their building approval. Yep. yep.
1: That's right. So there's a lot of stages in that first pre-construction. Yeah, it's
0: quite involved, that pre-construction, isn't it? Yep.
1: So we... Before we can approve it, we'll need plans that comply, Mm -hmm. either having a town planning approval or not. We'll need engineering, soil testing, but we'll also need energy efficiency Mm -hmm. uh, to ensure that the building will meet the minimum requirements. And we'll also need, in Queensland, we need the builder to be on board. Okay. Yes,
0: that's right, because you've got to have the builder's name on the building approval, don't you?
1: Yeah. Exactly. So we need to know that, or the state government has determined that it's important for the builder to be nominated, for them to pay insurance to cover Mm -hmm. that particular site, so it's not about their own insurance for the business. It's about the site that they're, that they're working on. And also, if the value is over 150000 they need to pay queue leave. Okay. So there's a lot of fees and there's a lot of...
0: Lots of little moving parts that you've got to bring together, isn't there? Exactly.
1: Yeah. So you can expect from a certifier that you would receive an RFI, a request for information. Mm-hmm. So before we start work... We will have assessed the plans. We'll have checked all the codes. We'll have made sure that everything's okay, and then we'll say, "Okay, here's the next piece of information that we need before we can go on to the construction stage." So it's in the. There's a lot of lingo in the construction industry. So an RFI is something we throw around, but it's basically a request for information, so that then the owner and the architect and the builder know exactly what's required before they can start on site.
0: Yep. So it's really a case of you looking at all of the documents that you've got and um, seeing if there's any gaps and then letting everybody but fill the gaps that they need to before you can then commence kind of your work of ticking everything off and giving that, permission to commence construction exactly and I think too that's you know it's something that I talk a lot about is that if you haven't anticipated that and you've said oh my gosh we've got a builder we've chosen a builder you know that builder is ready on this date we need to get everything to work to that and then you forget that there's this kind of four to six week time frame of where you actually need a building certifier to come in and do their job that can be a real hurdle and uh, frustration in terms of the delay at the death of you know getting started to get that work done so that you can commence construction.
1: Yeah, that's exactly right. There is, there can be confusion and frustration during that stage. <laughs> it's very it's possible. Like,
0: what are you talking about? I've got to get this approved. Didn't I do that back at town planning? Yeah, exactly. Yeah,
1: now, having those different layers of legislation is something that's very tricky to understand. And it's really complicated. There are reasons for it, from obviously, from the state government point of view. However, it just needs to be really clear and concise. And that's where I think if the certifier can give that information in writing and in a timely manner, then if everyone on board understands what's required for the next stage, then it makes it... A little bit easier
0: yeah so if we can just go back to before we sort of go on to talking about what then happens once you've got all that documentation together you mentioned getting the energy efficiency assessment done now can you just explain a little bit about who does that what that looks like and what output of information that provides and why that's sort of required
1: yeah for sure so under the national construction code there's a mandatory requirement so most of the mandatory requirements are minimum requirements so our minimum requirement in Queensland is six stars.
0: So when you say the, the the mandatory requirements, so the things that people have to do to get their approvals is a minimum performance level, like the least that they have to do basically to pass the test. Yeah? Exactly.
1: So okay. we'll see some clients that are very interested in ensuring their house is uh, energy efficient mm-hmm. and that it's designed correctly from a solar orientation and they will end up with a 10 star house. Yes. Uh, so they might spend a little bit more on glazing and they might get the orientation 100% correct which is great. That's It's not mandatory. Yes. So as certifiers, we are enforcing mandatory regulations. So the people that look after it are energy consultants. Mm-hmm. Um, so we work with a lot of different people, and they will basically model the house in 3D uh, for the specific site. So mm-hmm. they'll show the solar, solar orientation of the house, and then at different times of the year, they'll actually test how much cooling and heating energy is required to keep it at a fixed temperature inside. So if it's a house up on stumps, it's actually really difficult to achieve a six star rating. Whereas if it's a slab on ground, from the modelling, there's not as much energy leaking through the bottom of the house. Okay. So the state government has also provided the option to have star credits, which a lot of the time in Queenslanders and houses up off the ground, Having an external deck with a fan mm-hmm. is actually pretty normal. So in Queensland, uh, the, the, the government has thought that people are going to be living outside a lot because of our climate. And so if there is a space for people to be able to live outside, it would actually make sense that the house doesn't have to be insulated as much. So okay. having star credits and also uh, – or the other option is having photovoltaic cells.
0: Okay, gotcha. So that the energy use actually isn't coming from the grid because the star rating really shows how much energy the home needs to artificially heat and cool it doesn't it? Like that's what the star rating, so the higher the star rating, the less energy that's required to maintain the temperature in the house. And so it makes sense then, doesn't it? So when you say star credits, you get to kind of earn stars onto your star rating and you have to get a minimum of six, is that? That's right. That's right. So, So you get to earn that back by putting in a ceiling fan, putting in those photovoltaics because that's helping you lower the drain that you make on the energy grid to keep the house warm or cool.
1: Exactly. Yep. So there is still a minimum requirement. So it's mm-hmm. minimum four point five stars. Yes, but you can have a one and a half star, star extra credit.
0: Gotcha. Yeah.
1: So it's something you might hear the energy consultants talking about, so that they can balance. It's it's basically about balancing the amount of insulation, the size of the glazing, compared with the amount of money that you're going to spend to achieve this six star rating.
0: Yeah. And I think, you know, what's interesting to note is that those star ratings have, they've increased over the years, haven't they? I remember, you know, when we worked together years ago, you know, they they were, they've been lower, they creep up, the star credit allowance changes, there are some local areas that are trying to, and covenants will even bring in higher requirements for energy ratings. So um, I have clients that say to me, I want an eight star performing house. And I think when we know that our energy costs are rising on a regular basis, it doesn't take a, like it's not it's not rocket science to get a six star energy rating. It is just creating a home that's designed for orientation, that, you know, optimizes cross ventilation, that uses, you know, good design to use thermal mass to regulate the indoor temperature, all of those types of things. You just get a good designer involved. It's quite straightforward to get a six star energy rating, isn't it? So yeah,
1: Exactly. Yeah. And that that's why that it is always about that minimum requirement. Mm. Because I think we could always do better, and there's always an option for the for the government to push it moving forward. But it can seem a little bit, people can get a little bit nervous about it when they first start. So that's why we start off with four stars, went to five, now we're at six. Yeah. So I think from a sustainability point of view, it makes sense. Yes. And that's one of the areas that, as building surveys, we actually look after the sustainability of the building, uh, with the architects and building designers, obviously.
0: Yeah, and I think too that, I mean, it's interesting because people say I want a sustainable dwelling, I want to lower my impact on the environment and that for some people can mean that it's got to have a whole heap of high-tech options to it to be really green but it can be as simple as just making sure that you're optimising the situation that you have in the design that you're doing so that you are lowering, lowering your energy use as much as possible, isn't it? And it's I think it's really been a reaction to those homes that we saw get built sort of through the 80s and early 90s, where there were no eaves, mm. you know, there wasn't an understanding of orientation, and this has been a catch up on trying to manage that process because our climate just can't really work with homes that are, you end up using your air conditioner all the time, don't you? So yeah, exactly. Fantastic. So and the energy efficient efficiency consultant they use special software yeah to build that model in yeah.
1: So there's a couple of different options. Um, there's Burrs mm-hmm. which will model the the actual product, and there's also deemed to satisfy. So, in the codes, using a glazing calculator, they can actually identify how many stars a house would achieve mm-hmm. from first principles. Okay, it's a bit more tricky.
0: What do you mean by first principles?
1: Oh, so actually looking at the code and identifying what the solar orientation is, how many square meters of windows compared with the floor area, uh, what's the cross ventilation. And so that all by hand, based on a code in the, based on a, a um, formula in the code. Yes. Whereas when they put it into the computer, they model the entire building, and then the solar orientation and the based on the the position is actually calculated for them.
0: Yes, gotcha. Yeah, so it's more just a more automated. And there's um, there's basics, and you like there's different names for that process and that software in different places around the country, but it's all for all intents and purposes, it's an energy efficiency. Appraisal of how the home performs in terms of its energy use overall. Would yep, that be? That's great? exactly right. Yep. Yeah. So, okay, so you've gone, you've basically got all of that documentation together. It's all landed on your desk. You've been involved in the process, so you know that there's not going to be any red flags or particularly scary things that have to go back to the drawing board. What does it look like then in terms of the work that you do?
1: So, from that point on, we will issue a decision notice. So the decision notice is basically a list of conditions that the builder will need to comply with to ensure that the building work is going to be compliant at the end of the job. So it in, it includes things like the permit or the building approvals um, timeframe. It looks at what type of certificates will be required. So throughout the, throughout the stages of the building, it's not just one person building the entire house, obviously. So the tiler and the waterproofer would need to provide certificates. So we identify all that right at the beginning so that it's really clear for the builder and for the team to know exactly what they need to be able to get the house compliant.
0: Yeah. So the builder basically then has a list of all of the people he needs to get their warranty i suppose that they have done their job to australian standards national construction code building code requirements so they he then collects this pile of paperwork that then creates the complete picture exactly for you to be able to say this building has been built
1: according to the codes yep that's so, right yep so we we create a decision notice mm-hmm. we then with our decision notice we create a, doc, a set of documents that relates to the entire building work. So we, we would put any referral agencies in. So a referral agency might be the um, build-over sewer or build-over stormwater mm-hmm. or the siding variations or the town planning, anything to do with the additional requirements from the local authorities.
0: So those are the teams of people that might need to look at something at a certain point and say that it's okay?
1: Yeah, yeah. exactly. Yep. So all the approvals from the local authority or from the state government mm-hmm would go next. Mm -hmm. And then it basically identifies all of the things that the builder needs. So it would have the soil test from the engineer. It would have the energy efficiency. It would have the architectural plans and also the engineering plans. And it all gets put into one simple to read document Yes. that then gets lodged with council. Okay. So when we lodge it with council, the council aren't actually approving anything at this stage um, because under the legislation, the certifiers are the people that approve it, but they're holding it on our behalf. So Mm -hmm. if anyone buys a house and their solicitor does searches, that's what they're doing. They're actually searching, has this place been approved? Were the building works completed and were they compliant? Um, So it's a really important part of the process that we lodge it with the local authority. And before, in in Queensland, before we can even issue it to our owners or builders, we have to have lodged it with council first.
0: Okay. All right. So... And there will be, I know that there are some councils still that will have private certifiers on staff. So you can actually choose whether you want to go external to council or just use a certifier within council. It's not. A, it doesn't really happen in Queensland that much anymore because there was a decision, it's been in my career, I can't remember exactly how long ago, you probably know, but when they privatised that certification process. But I know that there's lots of regional councils in particular where the private certifier or the building certifier is still inside council and helps manage that process of that approval. Yeah, exactly. So
1: whether they're a private certifier or a building certifier that works for for the council, exactly the same process. You'll still have a decision notice. They'll still have all the documents and all the conditions. It's just that when they lodge it with their own council, It's in-house.
0: Yeah. Okay. And so it gets lodged. And then what happens for the builder to actually be able to start on site?
1: So then we'll issue it to uh, the applicant, the builder, and also to the owner.
0: Okay. So So And the applicant might be the...
1: the, Traditionally, the architect. Yes. So someone who's looking after the project, who's the main point of contact between the certifier and the project. Okay. So we will issue that electronically uh, to the applicant and also to the builder, and then basically we'll give them a call just to, mainly the builder, just to make sure that they've read all the conditions, <laughs> that they understand the process. We work a lot in teams uh, um, as in the construction industry. So if we've worked with someone a lot, we'll give them a call, a courtesy call just to say, look, this is what's happened. This is where we're up to. You can now start work and they'll have received that document and then they'll be able to go through it. What normally happens is there's a bit of backwards and forwards, just asking and clarifying points mm-hmm. um, because we we traditionally stamp the plans Yes uh, with any extra conditions that are required Okay So we might say talk about the the wet seal or the, the tiling in, in a bathroom and so if they need any clarification uh, they'll either look up the code or they'll come back to us and have a question which we really encourage we try to get a very clear and open line of communication between the builder and the certifier that's looking after the project because if we can get it right before we start on site it's right the first time mm. It doesn't cost anything to get it right the first time, (laughs) but it costs a fortune to have to take something down and redo it. Yeah. And so that's something that we look at all the time, whether it's stairs or whether it's uh, bathrooms or any of those items, it can be a big dollar implication to have to change at a later date.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And it's it's kind of the worst bit of news, isn't it, to get when you're sort of in the midst of construction and somebody comes on site and says, hang on, that's not meeting code. You've got to undo that, do it again. And it's like, holy cow, really? You know, and yeah, it's that delay, the expense and just the stress overall Mm. for everybody to have to do that. Okay. So, all right, we've been through that pre-design, that pre-construction phase, understanding what happens when it actually goes into council. And you may have noticed Mick said about how when your solicitor does a search, that's what they're actually looking for. I find, just as a side note, I find a lot of people don't do that search as part of their due diligence of checking properties. And so you'll go to a home that's saying it's newly renovated. And if you... If you then don't find out that that work has actually been had its building approval, um, I know that we personally, when we've negotiated purchasing properties, we've found out that work hasn't been approved and we've been able to negotiate the price of the property down on the basis that an unapproved work doesn't actually add value. It, in If anything, it actually diminishes the value because it's a headache that gets passed on to the future owner and council can come and instruct you to demolish it or rectify the approval, can't they? So
1: Yeah, for sure.
0: Yeah. Have you seen that? Just, I know that we're sort of going a bit off track, but have you seen that happen where somebody's come to you and said, oh my gosh, I didn't realise that this hadn't been approved. What am I supposed to do now? We didn't know when we bought the place, you know, that kind of thing. What, what, yeah. what happens then?
1: We have and we yep. see it almost every week. Do you? Yeah. And it's... Um, it's
0: heartbreaking, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, it
1: is heartbreaking. Yeah. Because someone's just gone out and purchased a property. It might not be the people they bought it from, but it might be the people before them that have carried out some work and it hasn't been approved. So making sure that the place is compliant is really difficult when you're doing it backwards. Yes. So the reason why I think the first stage is so important is because everyone's on the same page. We can, everyone can understand that we're going to do it to code, we're going to make sure that it's safe. Whereas when they've, someone's just gone in and done whatever they wanted you start to question, have they done it correctly? Have the Was the electrician licensed? Yeah. yeah is there going to be a fire? What do
0: the footings look like? Yeah, you can't, yeah, so.
1: So basically there are specialists that can, and, and a lot of time if you contact your local council, they'll have a specialist building certifier that can deal with it.
0: That retrospective approval, yeah. And they
1: basically go backwards. Mm-hmm. So they work with a structural engineer who's an expert to work out, is it structurally sound? Has there been subsidence? Is there any major deflections? They'll get an electrician to test the work, They'll do moisture testing for the water, for the wet seal. There's a lot of cost and a lot of time involved. And because it is such a specialist area, uh, it's very expensive. Yeah. So it can add a lot of heartache to someone who's just bought a a property. And some of the time we'll see it when someone's wanting to renovate and there's already work that wasn't approved. And so it's not meeting the code. And then they're going to have to go and upgrade it as part of the new renovation. Mm. So it doesn't, those problems don't go away. They just get, Hidden by paint and yeah. a new look, yes. But making sure that it is compliant actually is about working with competent people. That that's the main thing because everyone in the industry is licensed. Uh, so whether they're the structural engineer or the architect or the wet sealer, they have done the course. They know what they're doing, and they're actually when they sign that piece of paper, they're actually saying, "I'm a competent person, and I'm taking responsibility for this." The problem that you get when it's a backyard job is someone could have done all of those trades without any experience and it could be faulty and it could be dangerous. Yep. Um, so that's the last thing you want for yeah. your family home.
0: Yeah. No, well, thank you for that. And I think too, the other thing I want to ask about, and I know I'm springing this on you as well, is that whole tipping point of when you are renovating and extending an old home and, you know, say you're adding a new living kitchen dining room, but you're really not planning on touching much of the existing house, Is there kind of a feel, I suppose, for for the listener about where's the tipping point that they have to bring everything old up to code as it is now? Because you get old homes from the 50s that balustrades aren't compliant and, you know, they don't have smoke alarms through them and those kinds of things. And I know a lot of people will find that they get that sprung on them at the last minute when they kind of find that they can't start construction until they do bring all of it up to code and it's a thing they didn't budget for and that kind of thing. Is there some sort of gauge that you can give people about how, how to be aware of when they might um, trigger that for their own you know, project?
1: Yeah, for sure. So in Queensland, uh, the Building Act identifies which items are compliant. And if it was compliant at the time, it's compliant today. So for things like balustrade, although it's a great idea to upgrade it, it's not mandatory. However, it also identifies things like smoke alarms, and there's a recent law in in Queensland that has identified that if you carry out building work, you have to upgrade all of the smoke alarms to the Queensland standard. Okay. So there's a national construction code, and then each of the the states can actually have their own variations. So in Queensland, as of the 1st of January, Mm -hmm. we have smoke alarms inside every bedroom and outside every bedroom and on every level.
0: Wow. Okay.
1: So a small extension that has an electrician on site could mean that you have to install another five or six smoke alarms that are interconnected and hardwired. So it can, like you say, add a lot of cost. The The reason why they've done it is for safety.
0: Yeah. Um, so we were talking off air about this in terms of, you know, p- p- most people's reference of a smoke alarm is it's the thing that you stick to a ceiling. It's got a battery in it. It starts to beep when the battery's going flat. You just replace the battery. What Queensland government is now doing, are you aware of it's being done in other states as well or you're
1: not sure? it's different across all the states yep. um Queensland's got it has the only legislation to include it in bedrooms yes however new south wales and different states had actually in as part of the sale and renting process had already started that process of getting hardwired smoke alarms into houses.
0: Okay. And so um, when they're hardwired, they're actually not battery powered, they're all interconnected with wires that run through the ceiling, so if a smoke alarm goes off in one area of the house, they all go off. That's exactly. right, yeah. And and we were talking off air about if this was your family home, like it it's funny kind of when you think oh why hasn't it always been like that? Because, it, you know, you might have bedrooms down one end of the house to where your kids are sleeping, and if their smoke alarm goes off and you can't, you're particularly heavy sleepers and you can't hear it, then you're not going to know in time, whereas it does make sense, but it can be a surprise because it's a whole layer of electrical work that you may not have allowed for. So, uh, yeah.
1: Exactly. Getting that information at the beginning, and it's something that goes into RFIs or goes into plans right at the beginning. And, and into
0: your budget. Yeah. yeah
1: exactly. Working yeah. with people that know what they're doing. And a lot of the builders now are completely aware of that. And so when we ring them and say, oh, I've got it's, you're starting the construction phase, please be aware that these smoke alarms are going to have to be upgraded, oh, of course. We, and that's the answer that's we want to hear, yeah. that they're on top of it and they're, uh, they're aware of what's going on, yeah. which is great.
0: Fantastic. So, when we move forward into construction then, okay, so we've, as I said, we've done that pre-construction, you've sent everything into council. What does it look like then in terms of the building certifier's role once construction has started?
1: So we, we're involved all the way through. We work really closely with other professionals, such as the engineers um, and also land surveyors, to make sure that the building work is compliant. So when we look at the beginning of the project and if it was a new build, uh, a lot of the time we would be building foundations first and then we'd be putting a slab down and then we'd be building a frame. Mm-hmm. And then we'd be cladding it and going through. So, yeah. in Queensland and all the different states have got slightly different um, areas, but it's pretty similar. The house has to be inspected at the footing stage, at the slab stage, at the frame stage, and then at the final. Mm-hmm. I know New South Wales has a uh, wet seal and a, a waterproofing stage as well. So
0: when the waterproofing goes down in the bathrooms, yeah, then, then sure somebody needs to come and check it. Then, yep. yeah.
1: But across the board, it's a, it's a pretty tradition. It's a pretty standard approach. Now. The the first thing you've got to make sure in that stage is that the surveyor has identified where your boundaries are. Because okay. you can't rely on fences. Yes. You know, fences can be out by four or five hundred mil easily. So having the surveyor start by identifying the boundaries and then for the builder to have the the house set out by a surveyor is actually legislation in Queensland. Okay. So And it's know. pretty
0: wise, regardless of where you're building, isn't it, to get because the surveyor's working off data that goes back to a core point and is much more reliable as a result. I remember meeting a homeowner who was had relocated a Queenslander to a property in, in a Brisbane. They'd worked off the base of where the fence line was, was the boundary. They'd done their approvals and they'd got a relaxation to build closer to the boundary than was um, allowed. They moved the house in and they found out that the fence line was actually fa- half a metre into their um, into their neighbour's property. So they were actually more, far closer to the boundary than they thought. The house got fixed into position. They, they were then told they could apply for another relaxation but the neighbor who didn't realize that the fence line was where it was either wasn't you know where it was supposed to be either then said no we're not going to work we're not going to say that's okay. So they're stuck with an unapproved building, you know, trying to navigate this whilst everybody's on site and getting work done. So I can't emphasise enough. (laughs) Get your property surveyed. And I actually recommend that you get it surveyed before you start design because it's something you need anyway. And it informs the designer to get it right as
1: well. So we have a lot of the time where the, the, where the building designer or the architect has done a great design. And then when the builder goes on site, and has it surveyed? It doesn't fit onto the block.
0: Oh, gosh. And so the surveyor, just as a side note for the listener who may not know what a surveyor does, they just come and basically use core data for your area to then map out exactly where your boundaries are. They'll also do levels and any easements or anything like that that will be particular constraints for your site. Is that yeah, right? Yeah, exactly. So, much,
1: yep. so having that done right at the beginning, mm. and a lot of great designers actually do it right at the beginning, so they know exactly where it is. And it makes the builder's life a lot easier. Mm. Because uh, there's nothing worse than having an excavator on site, having the the site surveyed, and then reading the plans and realizing this isn't going to fit.
0: Oh gosh! And then having yeah. a,
1: a panicked call to us as certifiers saying, "What are we going to do next?" Yeah. So you want to avoid that, um, and I think the easiest way to do is that is to get the information at the beginning, and so it's really clear and concise. So once the once the builder and the surveyor have set the site out and they've start digging, started to dig the footings, uh, the engineer. Or the certifier can actually come to site and carry out a footings inspection. Yeah. So we're looking for Or you because for...
0: you can do both. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it's an unusual combination but very useful.
1: <laughs> so we're looking for what's been built matches the plants. Yes. So Throughout the construction phase, it's not the time to just start changing things.
0: (laughs) No. Did you hear that? Somebody else told you that, not just me.
1: (laughs) Although it's tempting, it's a really, really bad idea just to start changing things on the fly. And whether that's engineering, so that it looks like there's too much steel in this footing, I might decrease it, or whether it's where the windows are going, it all has a knock-on effect. So what we're doing through that stage inspection is that we're going to check, is the footing's the correct depth? Are they the correct width? Is there the correct amount of steel? Does it achieve the cover? All those things that make it structurally sound, and so it's before the builder pours any concrete, so that everyone knows from that stage on, that we've got a really stable foundation, which totally makes sense. The next stage is the slab, and so at the slab stage, we're also going to be checking for termite penetrations and any termite issues, because in Queensland, especially in southeast Queensland, there are Thousands of homes that get affected by termites. And so, having the correct termite protection at the slab stage is really important so they don't come up next to your pipes or they're not around the edges of the building. So, that's something we'll look at, but we'll also rely upon a competent person to do that, to do the installation. In terms
0: of the actual installation of the termite. And is that a consideration in other states as well? That yeah. termite? Yep. Yeah,
1: so termites are pretty much everywhere. Yep. So, it's just something to be really aware of that. Depending on how active they are in your area, Queensland has a state variation to say even if your building structure is made out of metal and termites can't eat it, you still have to protect the building if there's any skirts or architraves or anything made any out of timber. Any tiny
0: little bit of timber in the house still needs to have some ter- have termite protection for it. Yep. Exactly.
1: So it's really prevalent. Yep. And speaking from first hand experience, <laughs> my house when we first bought it had termite damage. So we ripped out the old bathroom, renovated, put a new bathroom in. Great. Had the whole place treated, had everything done. Six months later when we we're doing our inspections, because we get a professional in to, to check, they discovered termites again. So they'd gotten uh, back in. Yeah. And luckily they'd only started eating the skirts. Um, so there wasn't a huge amount of changes. Structural
0: damage or anything like that, yeah.
1: But keeping on top of the termite protection and making sure it's an, it's designed and it's integrated into the structure is a really important stage. Uh, and it's something we'll look at at that stage and also something that we'll get a, a certificate from at the end of the job just to make sure it's complete and compliant. So once the builder has completed the slab, they then start on to the frame. And so in Queensland, it's a lot of timber frames. Um, obviously different places have got different types of construction. The engineer or the certifier will then come out at the frame stage and we'll check things like tie down. So tie-down is what will keep the house together.
0: Yeah, and stop it from floating away in a stiff breeze, really. yeah. Exactly. yeah. So <laughs> yeah.
1: because we have so many cyclones, yep. there's different ratings, there's different types, but we're basically following the engineer's plans yep. to make sure that that tie-down is in place and that it's not going to fall over.
0: And that's where you see that rod going through the top of the timber frame, right the way down. It's a big vertical steel rod, then down into the slab, isn't it? Exactly. So, yep. so
1: tie-down rods are really important. And then you'll see strapping, you'll see... Uh, A lot of bracing, yes. Um, So a lot of plywood to stop the house from
0: twisting. Yeah, exactly.
1: So a lot of the um, the sizes and the elements at that stage uh, need to be checked. To make sure that there's not too much deflection, that the house has got the adequate protection, so that it is going to be structurally sound.
0: And they've all been designed in by the structural engineer as part of their drawings that they've submitted for your approval. So you're then just checking that what's being built on site is meeting what was designed by the structural engineer.
1: So exactly. So if there's been a change, and so traditionally people builders will keep the footings and the slab the same. However. Timber design,
0: yeah, they can sometimes switch it up on site, can't they? Based on their certain methodologies, or yeah, if they've so got their own structural designer, yeah, exactly. So, yeah. so,
1: if something's being changed, as certifiers, we'll just say, well, you need to get your engineer involved. You need yeah. to go and get them to check it to make sure it is structurally sound. So, we always encourage the builder to to liaise directly with the engineer, and if that engineer has carried out the design, then they know what is critical. You know, there's always different elements that are more critical than others. Um, So if the engineer is carrying out that design and they can see straight away, oh, I was concerned about this and something's been switched or changed, they'll know straight away and they'll be able to either make that rectification before the house is clad, which is really important. So once the frame stage is complete, that's when a lot of the other trades start getting involved. Um, So the electricians start getting involved, the wet areas start getting sealed, uh, the cladding starts going on. So we're looking at those type of elements at the, at the final stage. And so it's mandatory that the certifier does the final stage inspection. And so at that point, the house is pretty much finished. We sometimes get involved in larger projects where they want us to come out before the house is finished, so before practical completion, just to check things like stairs and uh, balustrades and downpipes and making sure everything's okay. But traditionally, it's once the floors are sanded, the tiles are in, the windows are in, and we do a walkthrough with the plans to make sure... That what's been built complies with the code. So a lot of things that we're looking at there are the things that we use every day. So staircases. So we're checking that the stairs are all consistent. So there's more people are injured, and this statistics from the UK, by staircases than pretty much anything else in the house.
0: Wow. Yep.
1: So making sure that those things are, are consistent and that the rises are the correct height and that they're within code. A lot of the time people will say, oh, it's just paperwork or it's just this or it's just that, but for elderly people and for people that need assistance having a handrail and being able to walk consistently up a set of stairs means they won't trip and so therefore it is safer so it always comes back to our mantra that we're looking for to make these homes safer for Queenslanders we really think that if we can do the right thing at this stage then we can make sure that whoever's going to live there or whoever's going to visit or anything else is going to be safe and that's our main motto
0: yeah, because the last thing you want is a dear family friend falling down your set of stairs or a small child or something like that because they didn't have something to grab and stabilise themselves as they walk down and knowing that you could have done that differently in your design. So and I know too that in old old homes you'll often find that the risers, which is the vertical part of a staircase, the height of that won't be compliant with current codes or the staircase, I know we had an issue where the stair contractor came in and built the staircase and he didn't make the risers equal to each other and we had to come and instruct him to rip that out. And as a stair installer you'd think he'd know better, but luckily we had the, you know, ourselves and other people on board. To, to catch it and so yeah we had to get him to demolish it and rebuild it so that rises were exactly identical so they were out by maybe 10 mil but it's which is a centimeter but it's enough for your body just to feel it funny when it makes that trip up and down those stairs isn't it so yeah
1: exactly so we'll also be checking things like where the smoke alarms are you know are they connected? We rely upon competent people like the electricians to get their certificates, but also things like downpipes being connected. There's a lot of complaints in especially Brisbane. We get a lot of rainfall about where the downpipes are connected and are they connected to a legal point of discharge? So Queensland and Brisbane City Council especially have a very uh, clear definition of what the legal point of dis- discharge is. So if they're going to the street and it's not going to cause any impact on the neighbours, that's great. If they're all not connected and they just flow onto the ground and they they'll either end up damaging the next-door neighbour's garden or house or your own house. Um, the code is really clear about getting water away from the foundations because they don't want the clay or the soil to heave and to cause problems down the track.
0: Yeah, basically squish the slab and cause problems with the slab. And you are responsible for managing your own stormwater. The roof, that, the water that pulls off your roof on your property has to be managed by you and the systems that you put in place, doesn't it? So, exactly. So if yeah. you're
1: on a steep, steeply sloping block... One of the things you might look at right at the beginning is how we're going to deal with rainwater. Mm. So rather than at the end of the project saying, oh, it's a steeply sloping block, I can't possibly get the water to the street, mm. thinking about that right at the beginning. Yeah. And saying it is a steeply sloping block. Yeah. And having an idea about how we're going to deal with that.
0: Yeah. How do I push water uphill, basically? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah.
1: Are we going to install a pump? Yes. Or is it going to be another idea? So they're the sort of things that we look at, which is a greater, there's a greater depth and a greater width to our perspective than from the structural engineer's point of view. The structural engineer wants to make sure it's completely stable and safe, whereas we're looking at the usability um, and making sure that it complies with the codes.
0: Fantastic. No, that's a really comprehensive explanation. I, I I love that. I think that's given a really detailed picture of what it looks like. So it's not just the one-stop shop. It's not just a bunch of drawings hitting your desk and a tick and flick. It's actually a relationship and a process that happens throughout that pre-design, pre-construction and construction phase where the building certifier is a key member of your team and is a required member of your team legally and holds a lot of liability as well in terms of checking that everything that you're doing is meeting the codes to then make sure that your home is safe to occupy. Now, you mentioned practical completion. So that's a terminology, obviously, that is a contractual terminology, isn't it? So it's actually a physical point that's described in the contract. What does practical completion mean in terms of a certification sense?
1: So from a certifier's point of view, it's does it meet the NCC, the National Construction Code? So have we? And
0: is safe to move back into? Exactly.
1: Are we able to occupy this place? Have all of the requirements been met, Um, and also all the DA DA requirements? So if something was identified by the local authority, has that been achieved? So that we can then sign it off, and issue a final certificate to council, so that everyone knows that it's it's now complete and compliant. So there are different um, contracts, and a lot of the time people will split contracts. And if someone, you know, a brother or is an electrician or someone's a tiler or something else, they'll actually pull things out of the builder's scope and put it into their own scope. I'd, a lot of the time, this doesn't go well, uh, <laughs> to be honest. Um, and I have warned
0: people against this, yes.
1: <laughs> it's a nightmare, but... Yeah. Because it
0: does, it challenges your approvals, doesn't it? Because that practical completion is a is a certain trigger point and it's a it's a financial trigger point and you can actually make it happen if people want to move in before their renovation is actually completed. Sometimes in the contract that means it will just trigger practical completion, Mm. which then brings on all these that's actually what starts your defects liability period and you know, so it's it's something that you just need to do some research about, make sure that when you're making decisions about how you want to live in your house, at what point you want to live in your house, how you're getting it built, who's being involved, that everyone knows the whole picture so you can get the right advice about what things you might need to be aware of, particularly from whether you may or may not be able to get your approvals at certain points.
1: Yeah, exactly. So it could cause friction between the builder and the owner if the owner hasn't been able to complete their aspect Mm. because the builder's going to want money. And the final certificate in Queensland means that they can actually achieve payment from the banks. So everything needs to be completed, all the glazing, all of the tiling, all of the electrical. And so if there's any mistakes between the two, it can cause what had been a really great project to sour pretty quickly. And a lot of the time that just means that people don't have a great feeling when they go into the house, which is a shame because they've spent a lot of time and a lot of money getting to that point. So those are the sorts of things I think need to be really clear at the beginning of the project. And worked out and balanced that idea of we might be able to save X amount of dollars by doing it ourselves. However, if it's all in one place, the builder has the responsibility to complete it so that it is to the minimum standard of Queensland or Australia.
0: Yeah, I think that's fantastic advice. Okay, so this has just been amazing because I think, you know, you at home will be seeing just how much is involved in checking all of the boxes that your home is going to be, whether you're renovating or building, is going to be a safe place for you to occupy and going to be actually what you paid for because you don't pay for a home that's not safe to occupy, do you? So, and and that, um, you know, there's this, obviously, you know, Mick is talking about getting involved before the approval actually needs to be done so that the certifier can oversee the design process and make sure that, you know, that's all being done in a compliant way, getting everything lodged with council, being available during construction to inspect things, um, providing that final certificate. So perhaps, Mick, you can tell us a little bit about what happens post-construction for the certifier.
1: Yeah, perfect. So we we consider once the final inspection has been carried out for it to be the construction period to be finished. Um, so, what we've got to make sure is that the the construction phase has been achieved, um, and then that there aren't any defects left, and then we actually go through and identify all of the certificates that we said at the beginning of the project.
0: All the things that were on that list for the builder when you gave the that first piece of that decision notice to him. Yeah, that decision him. notice
1: yeah. that they've been achieved that they have been carried out by competent people. So what we refer to uh, in in Queensland as any of the trades and anyone that we work with and any building designer or architect that they're competent for their role. And so we have a competent person register that means that if we've never worked with this person before, we'll actually go through and do a search on their license. So if they're a wet sealer, are they licensed with the QBCC, which is who licenses yep. people in Queensland. Same thing for engineers, same thing for architects, same thing for anyone involved in the process that they're actually competent. And they're able to do that work. Uh, and then we keep that competent person register up to date. So we go through it all the time. We make That's sure that those, those people... Are... have
0: that as a downloadable PDF on <laughs> <Yeah>. your website.
1: <laughs> but then it just gives you the you, you understand that that person is the correct person for the job. Yeah. They're, uh, they're
0: actually qualified to do what they're saying they're qualified to do. Yeah, yeah, exactly.
1: So a lot of the time people will see us shuffling papers around after the building work's been completed or we will ask questions about those certificates... When the when the law changed to be interconnected, we would go straight back to our CAs, which is a um, certifiers' assistants, who are really highly trained and an awesome part of our team. Would go back to the builder and say, "This form sixteen doesn't say that it's the the smoke alarms are interconnected. Can you just query that with the with the electrician and get it in writing that they are a competent person and that they have interconnected as per the code?" And so a lot of the time, because there was a changeover or because of whatever reason, it wasn't interconnected and it wasn't specified on the, on the right, certificate. Right, Yeah. And so if we just blindly accepted it and said, oh, great, yep, yeah, we've got all the certs. It's all just paper. Who cares? And just throw it into council. Then we would have missed some pretty cr- critical ideas uh, and some pretty pretty critical elements of the build. So that's something that we take a lot of time and a lot of effort to get that right. Uh, and then once we know that all of those elements are completed, we'll issue a Form 21. So in Queensland, that's like the certificate classification or the final certificate. That
0: complying development certificate at the very end, yeah. So or construction certificate. Sorry, it's called in New South Wales. Yeah, yep. So
1: so we'll then lodge that with all the documents that we've received into council again. So council have a record from the beginning what was approved, and at the end that it was completed and compliant. So that if The solicitors are doing those searches. They should be checking for the beginning and the end.
0: Gotcha. Yeah. So they didn't just get a building approval at the beginning. They actually got that final certificate that says everything has been done as per what was approved at the beginning, and it's all you know, it's all complete.
1: Exactly. So it just closes off the whole process and allows the the people to then who are going to be living in the house to have complete confidence that it's now a complete and compliant house
0: and a point of recourse too. If anything goes wrong, there's there's all of that documentation in place that said that it was done according to the rules and regulations. Exactly. Fantastic. All right, so Mick, I suppose the last thing I wanted to ask was... What does a building certifier actually, you know, what do their fees look like and what do they cost and what should people be aware of when they see a building certifier's fee? Because often, as we know, it'll be the building certifier will be sourced by either the designer um, and their work coordinated by the designer or you'll go straight to the builder and the builder will have their own building certifier they ordinarily work with. And so you'll often as a homeowner just get presented with, well, you need a building certifier, here's how much it's going to cost. I know that it varies quite a bit, but in terms of that fee, what should be included in that fee, what the homeowner needs to be aware of, can you give some ideas about that?
1: Yeah, for sure. So the the majority of the time, what you're looking for is a written quote that actually identifies what's been included. Um, So then you can always get a comparison and you can always understand what has and what hasn't been included because there's mandatory requirements. Uh, We are a regulator, uh, that's our role. So there's council fees, there's um, final inspections, there's GST, there's all those sorts of things that have to be included. But then there's also things that a building certifier may have picked up on, such as a DA or a um, siting variation or a build over stormwater application or whatever it is, that might be added in in the notes or as part of the fee proposal. So you might get one for a, a fee proposal for Four and a half thousand dollars. You might get one for two thousand dollars, and think, "Oh, I'm just going to go with the two thousand dollar one," not realizing that Mm. there's all these additional services that, because that builder works with the certifier, they've actually gone above and beyond. They've done some searches. They've tried to work out what was required, and then they've quoted for it. So, I don't think there's a there's there's a price range or anything like that that you can give. But I think always getting it in writing, reading the engagement agreement, uh, reading the contract. Understanding things like what's the time period. Some people want two years, or some people want five years. But understanding what's actually been proposed in this fee proposal, and r- basically getting an understanding for what you're going to get for that dollar.
0: Yeah. So at least you can compare apples with apples, and and remembering, you know, Mick, you've talked about how the building certified does come on site, that those inspection fees are included, or that you need know what they're going to be so you can budget for them down the track. Because they won't be included, a builder generally doesn't include that as part of their building construction quote, do they? they? That's always sort of an add-on. So whether they're using their own certifier or you're going to continue using the certifier that gave your approval, then that can be something that can catch a lot of people by surprise, can't it? Yeah,
1: exactly. And I think it is difficult to give a full full set of fees at the beginning of a project because you haven't carried out all of those searches so because every single site is different, it is really difficult to get a complete uh, package of what's going to be required. However, at least if you've got an understanding of what's not included, then when you are comparing two different prices, you can you can be much more better informed. You also might want to talk to the structural engineer to find out whether they've included inspections in their fee proposal because a lot of engineers would prefer that if they've done the design for the footings and the slab and the frame that they go to site and they check it and therefore It's safe and they know exactly what's going on. So you don't want to double dip. If someone has said, oh, I'll, I'll provide that extra fee and the engineer's already got it, it could be doubling up.
0: Yeah, and that's very true. And I know it's my personal preference to have the engineer do the inspections of the footings that they designed and the slab that they designed to make sure that the builder has built it according to the drawings that they did as a structural engineer and that they provided the certificate on. What I always enjoyed about you was that you you are a, a structural engineer as well as a building certifier so you look at them in a slightly different tone to the way that a building certifier who wasn't an engineer would um, in that regard so but yeah you know that's very true Mick in terms of making sure that you don't double dip and that you understand and you've had a conversation with the builder about okay who are all these people when are they coming who you know I only need one person to do this inspection I don't need to pay twice for it I, I would prefer it be this person rather than this person you know what does that look like so that you've got In your budget, very early on, a complete picture of how that process is going to look. Fantastic. Okay, so we've talked about relaxations, build over sewers, build over stormwaters. They're kind of some catchphrases for industry stuff. So... Can we just quickly, if we can, because it's pretty dry information, but I know that um, if it is something that applies to your own site, you know, um, it'll be handy to know. I suppose the relaxation is the big thing because the relaxation for me is you may be completely compliant or just outside of the rules with your town planning and, and not necessarily need that town planning approval, but you may need a relaxation as part of your building approval. What does a relaxation look like? Like, what is it? What is it? What does it do?
1: Okay. So in Queensland, based on those different pieces of legislation, we have local planning. uh, And if you're inside the local planning laws, we don't need town planning, which is great. If you're outside of those, obviously, you need planning. Whereas um, in Queensland, we also have another set of rules, which is the QDC, the Queensland Development Code. So the Queensland Development Code sets out whereabouts the house can be on the block. And so if it doesn't fit inside that building envelope from the plans that were drawn... So for an example, um, a carport being within the first six metres of the road boundary would trigger a relax. So it's called a relax because we're the council will relax that law. That's <laughs> so a, quite an Australian sort Picture of... Picture them
0: all kind of leaning <laughs> back and going, oh, it's okay.
1: <laughs> so it's actually called a siting variation Yeah, is the, is the technical term. And the local authority has been given the authority by the state government to relax that law. So it's something that we... We'll see quite a bit that you might have approval from the council for planning, and then you might need planning from you might need approval from the council for a siting variation as well.
0: Gotcha. So but it's via a different depart. It's not like it needs to sit on a town planner's planning at the officer's desk in council. It's a different kind different of department. agent, isn't it? So exactly. Yep. So they're
1: the building branch yep. versus the planning branch. Yeah. But it, it can be frustrating and it can be annoying if someone's gone through the whole planning process and at the same time they could have been running a parallel process with council gotcha. for the siting variation or for the build-over stormwater application or for the build-over sewer application. All of these are classed as referrals, so it can't be approved by the certifier. It has to be referred to somebody else, and that branch is always different. But if those referrals can be running in parallel it can actually save some time if people are in a rush.
0: Yeah, so I suppose it's that case, isn't it, of understanding what are all these different rules that you're going to trigger. So a build-over sewer and a build-over stormwater will be required when you've got a sewerage pipe or a stormwater pipe running across your block and you want to build within a certain distance of it or you want to build over the top of it. Some councils will say, no way. Some councils will say, yes, you can, but the construction has to look like this because at any point we need to bring in machinery, you're going to lose that bit of building that you've built over it. And so understanding that your lot may trigger, your site may trigger these extra requirements. That's great advice that those those referral agencies, those other departments in council can be ticking off those things at the same time that you can be getting your approvals for the building envelope, the design and all those types of things so that you can sandwich all of that together and streamline the process overall. So, And this is the thing is that I know that there's been projects that I've done where because we've brought the building certifier in early to give us that advice, we've been able to split the building approval, to be able to get on site sooner, to get certain work approved so that that work can be happening whilst we're getting all the other approvals to happen to commence the actual house. You know, there's a l- high, really high level of strategy that comes from having these team players involved at different points that can just save time, money and stress overall, can't it? So, yeah, exactly. Fantastic.
1: The, the one thing I would say is you want to make sure that when you're talking to the planner that you're quite confident that you're not pushing the envelope too far. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> because if it's not going to get approved, <laughs> and then you go through and you have all these other referrals that get approved, but your planning gets rejected, then it, that could be. Yeah, that's very, very true. Annoying.
0: Actually, like because every time we have split, we've taken on a certain level of risk. There is so risk. Yeah, yeah, so so my, yeah. I know that in an ideal world, you'll get your design done, you'll get that advice early on, you'll get your town planning done, you'll get a development approval, you'll then do your, build, your construction and building certification, like your drawings for your building approval, you'll then get your building approval done, and then you'll start on site. That process, though, sometimes people say, no, I can't wait that long. So to start your building approval drawings before you've got your town planning approval, for example, because they're different drawings, means that you're taking on cost, you're taking on risk, and at any point, you could actually hit a point where council says, nah, not going to do it, and you've got to go back to right back, and you've lost that money you've invested in moving forward and ahead of the process ahead of time, haven't you? So Yeah, exactly. Yeah, thanks for pointing that out. (laughs) (laughs) Well, Mick, it's been fantastic to have you here with me, and I I can't think of it, like the last time that we probably saw each other was was at my place in in uh, Brisbane, wasn't it? So it's been lovely to catch up with you as well, and thank you so much for the generosity with which you've shared your knowledge and your information around uh, building certification process. You know, Mick is Queensland based, and a lot of what he's talked about is from a Queensland perspective. It applies countrywide and it'll just have different names, different terminology. The rules are still there. They start at that National Construction Code and Australian Standard level, don't they? Yep, that's right. And then filter down to all of the state levels and then into your local levels as well. So, you know, if you've heard terminology here that perhaps isn't familiar, use the terminology because you'll often find that across the different states, building certifiers and people in the profession, they will know roughly what you're talking about, and they'll be able to tell you in the terminology that's specific to your state. It's one of those things about Australia. We don't have these common rules across our states, do we? No, exactly. So thank you so much for joining me. It's been really, really great, Mick. Cheers.
1: No, my pleasure. Thanks so much for having me.
0: I really hope that you found this episode helpful in learning more about the role that a private certifier or a building certifier will perform on your project. Now, as I said at the beginning, it's rare to not need one for your renovation or new build. And learning what is required for them to do their job and for you to get permission to commence construction can actually make the whole process so much simpler. Now, if you'd like to learn more about MIC and building approvals and advice, make sure you head to the show notes. I'll have links to their website and social pages there so that you can learn more about them and you can get in touch. In the next episode, I'll be talking to landscape designers Fiona and Julia from Sticks and Stones Landscape Design. They're a Sydney-based team creating and executing beautiful landscape designs for their projects there. So Fiona and Julia will be sharing lots with us, including how a landscape designer differs from a landscape architect and how to get the best results when working with them for your project. Join me then. Now, before we finish, remember that our Season 4 podcast partner is Colourbond Steel and their Mat range. So Mick mentioned the need for your home to meet energy efficiency requirements as part of achieving your building approval. So one of the things that I love about the Colourbond Steel mat range is that it also incorporates their unique Thermotech solar reflectance technology so it's called thermotech and this is designed to reflect more of the sun's heat on hot sunny days now when i got my first batch of samples of the colorbond steel matte range and they're lovely gorgeous big samples so they're great for getting a feel for how the, the product's going to look I actually, you know, you turn over and look at the back of them and each of them have key information printed on a sticker that's put on the back and this includes details on how each colour needs to be rated in an energy efficiency assessment and its solar absorption and its solar reflectance index information as well. Now this sounds techy but basically it means that there's help to reduce the guesswork when it comes to determining the energy efficiency of your home when you're getting it assessed as part of your building approval and so you can know that as a material, colour bond steel has been developed to handle and it also helps reflect the harshest Australian sun. So this is great information for you to have when you're navigating your approvals overall. So make sure that you head to www.colourbond.com forward slash undercover architect and it's colorbond.com forward slash undercover architect to find out lots more information and you can learn more about the Thermatech technology and request samples for your project. Thank you for tuning in to the Get It Right podcast with Undercover Architect. Now if you head to the Undercover Architect website, you'll see loads more helpful information on how to get it right when designing, building or renovating your home, simply and with confidence. Not only can you see all the podcast episodes there, there's also a wealth of written blogs and videos too, covering all sorts of topics. And there's other ways as well that Undercover Architect can give you more support and guidance for your project. Now, if you've enjoyed listening to the podcast, please subscribe so that you always get notified of new episodes as soon as they go live. And I'd love it too if you could please leave a review. (laughs) I know that iTunes doesn't make it easy to leave a review, but when you do, this is super helpful in spreading the word that this podcast exists to others who really need to hear it to get help with planning their future homes. This has been Amelia Lee from Undercover Architect. Thank you for listening and for letting me be your secret ally. Looking forward to next time. Bye.